Welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm your host, Emma Thomas, and today my guest is Tanith Carey, an award-winning writer and author of 12 books on psychology, parenting, and social history. Her writing has been featured in the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Times, the Spectator, and the Sydney Morning Herald. And her latest book is entitled Feeling Blah, Why Anhedonia Has Left You Joyless and How to Recapture Life's Highs. I'm looking forward to finding out a bit more about what anhedonia is. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Hi, Emma. So uh, I'm I'm guessing there's a very good reason why you didn't call it uh, (laughs) feeling anhedonia, because not that many people will, will have heard of it. So can you tell us, for people who are hearing that word for the first time, anhedonia, what is it and why is it important enough to write a book about? Right, so anhedonia is a word that describes your loss of enjoyment in the things that you used to love. Um, It also encompasses feeling meh, feeling flatlined, feeling can't be arsed with life, um, sort of feeling like you're sleepwalking. And I I think the more I talk to people who who experience this, sometimes they feel on the outside, you know, they might be at parties but not feel in it. They might be like, like, they might love Christmas, but they don't actually Mm. feel the joy flowing through them. Um, And what it is, I can see from the research is that it's a disruption in the way the brain's reward system works. So there are many, there can be many, many different reasons, which obviously I explore in the book, but, but at the end of the day, it's talking about basically why maybe the dopamine isn't flowing through your mesolimbic reward pathways quite as well as it should. And so therefore it's very hard to feel good feelings and really enjoy life. Mm, and I'm sure that will resonate with some, at least some of those listening to this, either themselves or maybe a, a kind of partner, family member. Um, but this is partly sort of stems from your own experience of, uh, I guess, self-diagnosing anhedonia. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you sort of realised what was what was happening for you? Yeah, so I noticed this um, a few years ago. I got some very good news from my literary agent. She rang me up and um, she was telling me the good news about how it was a better deal than we expected and it was good money and it was a project I wanted to do for a long time. And then I could hear myself on the phone going, yeah, that's great, fantastic, brilliant. But actually, I kind of couldn't feel the joy flowing through my body. And, And when I put the phone down, I kind of thought, oh, that's really strange. You know, I can't actually feel good feelings I feel kind of numb um and then after that day I kind of noticed it more and more so as I just mentioned you know like I love Christmas but I'd be up at Christmas morning with the kids watching them with the stockings I just couldn't really be in the moment with them I couldn't really feel pure joy coursing through me and then I kept thinking about it and it was kind of percolating um through my consciousness and then it came to COVID and then lockdown. And then we were told about how amazing it was going to be when it was all over and how thrilled we were going to see when we were going to see our family and do things like go to the hairdressers and (laughs) go to parties. And I sort of noticed again, I was like, oh, well, I nice, but I don't really feel that excited or joyful about it. So then I always say as a writer and an author, I always write about what I need to learn. And that's been the progression of my books. And then, so I think that, you know, a lot of the issues with uh, feeling blah is that we don't really share it a lot. Like we kind of think it's a bit of a guilty secret. We feel ungrateful. We kind of blame ourselves, particularly in midlife, for being miserable cows or why can't we just, you know, smile a bit more. 
And um, so when my uh, one night, you know, I was Googling as you do, and my husband was sleeping next to me, and I was this guilty secret. I went on, the internet, <laughs> you know, why don't I enjoy my life anyway? So I started filtering through the responses, and then I came across this word, and it was anhedonia. And I was like, hold on, how come? And this is a sort of this is a proper medical word. I mean, it's in psychiatry, it's in neuroscience, mm. it's in sort of you know the study of depression. But it's like, hold on, how come none of us know this word? you know, unless we're in the professions, you know, because this explains so much for so many of us. And as we all know, unless we name it, it's very hard to tame it. And we're just living in this kind of gray space, this kind of middle ground in mental health. We're talking about joy at one end of the spectrum and despair and depression at the other. But how come we're not talking about this part where many of us are? And I really wanted to bring it out into the open because I think it's a, it's a state that a lot of us are in but are maybe afraid or embarrassed to talk about. And the great thing is, is that it is a thing and there are loads of environmental, biological and psychological reasons for it. So once we know this and we can find our own reasons for blah, there are also loads of solutions. You know, my job in this book was to bring together all this incredible research into a way that people can digest and use it in their own lives. And it, it is fascinating because I'm, I'm still a bit of a biology geek, but but reading, you know, the sort of the evolutionary biology behind what is going on in our sort of brain and our reward system. So can you sort of explain a little bit about how that clash between our cave dweller brain and our always on more, more, more modern world create this sort of perfect breeding ground almost for, for anhedonia? Yeah, I, I- that's exactly the case. So basically, we still have the same brain that we had 100,000 years ago when we were still hunter-gatherers. And our human brain has evolved very well for us to survive in that environment. So, you know, if you compare humans to other primates, we actually have a little bit more of that dopamine. And the dopamine we tend to think of is this the sort of is the molecule of pleasure, but actually it's the molecule of anticipation, of striving, of exploration. It basically triggers you to get up in the morning and go and get your your needs met. So go and find food, go and find shelter, go and find a mate, so that your your genes continue. Um, but what's happened in the modern world is that we live in a kind of capitalist society where basically we are in limbic capitalism where everything is designed to to be sold to us by triggering our dopamine um, system Mm. so you know we can get anything right away without even moving from our sofa like if we've been bombarded aren't we pretty much but our phones are always with us and they're constantly pushing consumer consume this or or you know somebody over here is having a lovely time why aren't you 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 buy this mascara you two could look wonderful i mean if you even if you think about our own lifetimes i mean if you compare uh you know maybe our childhoods in the 70s where you know you had if you wanted to listen to a piece of music you liked you had to listen to it on the charts then you sort of had to go down to the record shop you had to go and buy the record you had to bring it back you had to put it on the turntable you had to put the needle on do you know what I mean and now any song you want you can get instantly you know and that's just a small example but it's like if with everything any food you want you know any porn you want any you know clothes you want you could just get it right away and you know like instead of waiting for a film you could go and see your you could see your favorite film in a matter of seconds because you could order it on amazon mm-hmm. so the thing is is that like when everything is designed to feel good like as it is in con- convenient society then nothing feels good so over time you know uh the, the neurons on our brain lose their dopamine receptors the reward system becomes blunted and it's just much harder to reach those highs generally 
So that's one thing. I mean, the, the other thing is, is that as humans, we have survived. We are the kind of the, the apex predator because um, we have a very, very finely attuned stress system. This is because, you know, when we were wandering around as hunter-gatherers, we had a lot of threats to deal with. So we had like, you know, literally, it sounds mad, mm. actually, but, like <laughs> birds could kind of like... But you had to be vigilant, right, in order to pass <laughs> your genes on to the next generation. <laughs> it was rewarded. Apparently, like, birds of prey used to sort of take human babies away. It's just mad, isn't it? But like, <laughs> So we have a very highly attuned threat system because basically we had to survive in this very hostile environment. Thing is, is that as we know, um, that threat system is now triggered um, to the same extent mm. by that actually aren't going to kill us so we're constantly overloaded with sort of like things that trigger our cortisol the problem the problem with like having constantly uh, triggered cortisol is that cortisol is designed to stay in the body for quite a long time after it's triggered so say that there was a saber-toothed tiger in the environment um it doesn't just go down as soon as you can't see the saber-toothed tiger it also the cortisol levels stay up just in case the the saber-toothed tiger Mm. is still in the environment so it actually takes about an hour once triggered for the stress hormone cortisol to reduce back down. The thing is with with dopamine and our other pleasure chemicals is that that in order to keep getting our needs met, once they're triggered like serotonin or dopamine, they break down very quickly in the body. So what we have ha- what we have is like we're constantly high high cortisol, and then cortisol also dampens the effects of um, feel good chemicals like. Uh, mm dopamine and serotonin so, so it's a double whammy in a way so your yeah. your kind of your your ability to kind of use that that dopamine is is going down and your cortisol is going up and both of those things are yeah. kind of exacerbating one another yeah absolutely i mean the thing is the human brain is not a pleasure generator as we've been led to believe it's actually a survival machine so i think that we really need to get start getting back on side with that because it's just facing too many inputs which really it isn't designed for. So we have to all assemble a toolbox of tools that work for us personally that start mm-hmm. helping us to get our brain back on side. And I think that's really important because, to be honest, we're facing a mental health freefall. It's not just as our, our, as our, us as individuals. You know, the research shows, like, in the last 15 years alone, every sort of generation of British children have got successively more unhappy. You know, ever since the 50s, adults are also getting more unhappy. There's something, there's a massive mismatch here. There's a gap between what our brains were designed for and what we're using them for. And it's time for us to get the neuroscience on side because we are very fortunate. We do understand now how good feelings are made in the brain. And we now have to kind of use that to push back. Mm. And, you know, things, I guess, like social media use, like the amount of sort of, I mean, this is a controversial one, maybe, but screen time, the amount of screen time that our kids are getting, especially sort of things like YouTube or, yeah, again, sort of social media if they're on it. Um, but but things like porn as well. So, sort of, you know, porn addiction is is on the, the rise, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, so all, all of those things contributing, but also stuff like the sort of the loss of community and and yeah. having that that those connections again are you know if we're thinking back to the sort of the cave cave dweller days that that were so necessary for us that many of us are missing yeah so you know you're talking there about serotonin which is you know our place within the group which is now constantly being kind of uh, is under attack really because like you know when we grew up in quite in you know, tri- tribal hunter-gatherer groups. We you know we were in sort of a close-knit group of 50 to 100 people. Now we see more people probably in an hour than our ancestors would have seen in, you know, their entire lifetimes. That's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> in a way. Just and like- unfortunately, 
Yeah, and unfortunately, humans tend to be kind of states quite status driven, and they're basically we're we're constantly comparing ourselves. So mm-hmm. we're constantly comparing ourselves to people who seem to be doing better than us, or at least so sensibly on social media. Then we're constantly taking these hits the whole time, so that we feel sort of depressed, not good enough, um, and then we start to turn in those bad feelings on ourselves and blaming ourselves, and you know, and also oxytocin, you know, is sort of like the molecular bonding and and connection, um, and you know, things like internet porn that basically diverts that. Uh, from loving relationships into what you're seeing on the screen, which is a great deal, which is a massive shame. And, you know, you do hear a lot of people with anhedonia, men with anhedonia particularly, mm-hmm. saying that you know, they they consume so much porn that they just it also affected their reward circuits. Like they, they stopped feeling pleasure or joy in anything. Yeah. Or, I've uh, just been listening to the new Catelyn Moran book about, about men. Um, and there's a chapter in there where she's sort of talking to um, a young man who's had the same age as her, similar age to her daughters and talking about exactly that and how, you know, having to sort of go cold turkey and, and almost like, you know, completely rewire those kind of relationship dynamics. Exactly, yeah. Um, I, mean, th- I mean, thank goodness, you know, the, the human brain can grow and develop more than we realise, you know what I mean? And we can, we can get kind of, uh, we can learn, we can rewire those circuits, but I think it's time to kind of feel more in control in our brain, of our brains than perhaps we have been led to believe that we are. And once we know a little bit, obviously the brain is hugely complicated, but as soon as we know metaphorically how the brain is working and the reward system is working and how we can turn up the dials on certain chemicals, the more we can start to take more control because in, at the moment our brains feel a bit more in control of us, <laughs> which of course they are <laughs> like out of our control, you know? Yeah. And, and our, our brains have this sort of negativity bias, don't they? To sort of almost like note and notice the negative more than the positive. So you talk a bit in the book about sort of consciously making yourself Mm-hmm. aware of and note and noticing sort of positive things because our yeah our, our brains are sort of wired to do the opposite exactly so because basically negativity bias is about looking for the, looking for things that are threats so that we survive but you know most of the time luckily in this country at least you know we're not about to be killed at any moment so you know we really just need to be kind of looking out consciously for the things that can kind of calm our nervous system instead of enervate it so that's why I'm a massive fan of glimmers, which is this wonderful somatic idea, which is like basically through, even if you're having the worst day, if you look out for them, there will be tiny moments of joy and mm. then you can note them and absorb them and just take some pleasure in them. That will calm you down. That will reduce your cortisol levels. And the more you look for glimmers, the more you, you easier it is to find them. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, the thing is, like, let's face it, modern life is tough. You know, I mean, people can say, oh, well, we have better health care and all the rest of it. But we and we do have our needs met. But, you know, it's a lot of stress, a lot of worry about the future, a lot of worry about climate change, political systems, cost of living crisis. You know, and what's happened over the years is that we have lost what we instinctively used to have. They used to make us feel better, like connection with nature, connection with the community, mm. you know, uh, whole, simple whole foods, those kind of things, you know, downtime, all those things have, as the world has got more stressful, have ebbed away. Yeah. So we need to get that back. So to make a conscious effort to kind of yes. put those back into everyday life because they're not things that we would necessarily kind of come across or do as a normal part of our day unless we kind of consciously seek them out 
and and you do talk we'll, we'll we'll come back in a bit maybe to um because the whole of the sort of the last part of the book is a whole load of different um suggestions for different things that people can do and sort of building that toolkit as you've talked about to sort of increase those feel good chemicals um but i wanted to ask you specifically about sort of estrogen and and our sort of female hormones, if you like, and how those impact the sort of the system, the feel good chemical systems, especially sort of with our fluctuating cycles, and particularly in sort of perimenopause and menopause. Well, I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that I discovered anhedonia when I was sort of heading into my 50s. Um, because before that, I can only speak for myself, but like, you know, I've been a very capable person. I've been a New York correspondent for a newspaper. I've done a lot of stuff, do you know what I mean? And then suddenly around that time I just suddenly feel felt this weird feeling that I just couldn't cope I wasn't doing anything different mm. and it wasn't until I realized and I, I did some research and I spoke to some wonderful menopause experts that I realized that you know our estrogen is intimately connected to our dopamine levels and that and also to our cortisol levels so as estrogen declines it also has a knock-on effect on production of dopamine and also estrogen is a buffer for cortisol so as that declines it also exposes us makes us feel more stressed so these these two things together just explained to me why I hadn't been feeling able to cope I mean suddenly I was like felt nervous about going on a motorway and before I'd been a completely competent competent driver it just didn't make any sense you know and also we know that in menopause the reduction in estrogen also has a knock knock on effect on the gut the gut microbiome Mm-hmm. Obviously, we now know that the gut microbiome is where it helps produce serotonin. So again, we need to, to to give special attention to that and think about our diet and just kind of from a multifactorial point of view, just kind of push back to try and you know whatever you know. Obviously, we're all different, and there are different ways that we can do this. But just kind of be mindful of, of that this is happening, and it's not our fault. And also, obviously, we are in midlife. We tend to be in the sandwich generation. We probably have kids who are reaching the more challenging teenage years. They're going through their own hormonal crisis. They're probably challenging you as a way to to seek their independence at a time when you're not feeling that great. You know, so it's really is a perfect storm around midlife of sort of hormonal, environmental issues. And, you know, we've probably got more responsibility at work. We're desperate not to kind of let any of the balls drop. We might have parents who are now reaching that age where they need more of our support. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, you do talk a lot in the book about the sort of the the kind of central role that stress does play in all of this, and I think it sometimes seems a bit trite to sort of say, well, just you know, try and lower your stress levels when you're you know you're juggling all of these really important kind of glass balls, and you can't drop any of them. But it is so vital to try and find ways to. To yeah. mitigate it or to kind of to counteract it because it, it you know it, it is such an important factor isn't it in, in all of this well I mean what I learned I mean it sounds kind of obvious but then it isn't I mean stress is the greatest enemy of joy there is it's impossible to really like enjoy a moment if you're stressed because you can't enter into it because you're always being vigilant you're always looking for for, for, for uh, threat your cortisol levels are, are high and your dopamine levels are going to be suppressed by that so unless we start to find some time when we can actually let those cortisol levels drop, it's going to be it's going to be really hard to feel good. And I think that it's it's just worth saying, you know, we do deserve 
I don't know, deserve, yeah, deserve is the right, right time. You know, we do deserve time to ourselves in order to allow those feel-good chemicals to, to circulate again. I think we need to put specific times in place in our diaries. I mean, one of the things that's made a big difference to me, and again, I don't know, I mean, it's just like knowing that dopamine is the mon- molecule of anticipation and it's triggered in a healthy way by novelty and also knowing that being stressed makes it impossible to enjoy my life. So every single week I put something in the diary that I look forward to without fail. Mm. And that just keeps me going, kind of, you know, planning, looking forward to it, having something just to kind of there, you know, on the horizon. It's just, I just think it's been incredibly helpful. And I implore, you know, other midlife women or anybody else really just to have that as well, like time for themselves. And one of the other things I talk about in the book is rediscovering your spark. And your spark is something that you are naturally drawn to, you'd like to do anyway. Um, you probably had a spark of it in childhood, but maybe it's gone down the, by, by the wayside because you've got too much work, you've got the kids to think about and all the rest of it. And then we kind of park it. But, you know, when you do your spark, whether for me it's like embroidery, which is kind of funny, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> you just kind of, you get into the flow and the flow is when your feel-good chemicals are flowing. And because the brain is very en- energy hungry, you know, all your attention is put into that. So you forget all the things that are worrying you. So, you know, finding things, finding time, you know, I say an hour a day without a phone is fantastic when you can really do something and you, you're going to have so much to give the people around you once you've kind of filled yourself back up again. Recharging the battery and, and yeah, so the energy up and cortisol down is, is the, is the goal. (laughs) And then beyond that, you know, if you have a regulated nervous system where you're not constantly, you know, your your cortisol is not constantly raised you know the people around you are going to be calmer mm-hmm. you know your teenagers are going to be calmer because they are seeing you looking you know because emotions are highly contagious so if we can come down from that cortisol place then they will become less jumpy around us as well you'll probably like to have less rows you're probably you know when you're when your teenager is challenging you're probably going to be likely to sort of notice it better in yourself step away take the steps to kind of diffuse it so you know there's a lot around this, you know, it's a complex web. And you, and you do, the, the anticipation thing I think is really interesting because we don't tend to think about that part of sort of joy or happiness. We think about the moment, but we don't necessarily think. And and, and actually, you're, you, you know, you're talking in the book about how that sort of lead up to the thing that is enjoyable, hopefully, is actually part of that process. And so if we're, yeah, if we're it's kind of getting out of that kind of catch 22 that the sort of you know you're not looking forward to things and therefore you're not planning them or doing them so almost like pushing yourself (laughs) off that cliff and going okay you you know you you might think you're not going to enjoy this that or the other but plan to do it anyway try and kind of engage in that process of anticipation and looking forwardness before you do it and that's going to increase the chance that you'll actually will enjoy it and will remember it and therefore do it again. Well, that's so true, Emma. I mean, one of the most enlightening conversations I had, because I spoke to a lot of neuroscientists for this book, was um, with Professor Kent Barrage. So he's taken forward the kind of the reward system experiments with the rats, you know, the Olden Milner experiment. And he looks at how joy is not just one thing, it's actually three things. So it's the anticipation, so looking forward, 
it's the appreciation, so being able to be in the moment so that the opioids can then flow, and then it's remembering it afterwards so that you want to do it again. So once you start to sort of realize that joy is those three things, you can start to kind of get it more on your side. And as you very correctly say, in Hanhedonia and Blah, we lose the motivation. So it's a really catch-22 situation. So one of the the, the big approaches for Anhedonia or Blah is behavioral activation, which is like, even if you don't feel like doing it initially, do the thing that you used to love, do it regularly, and then reg- and then bit by bit, the, the reward circuits will come online again, and you'll start to enjoy it more and more. Mm. So that goes back to the spark thing. So what is it you used to love, you know, maybe in your 20s when you had more time doing, you know, was it watercoloring? Was it kind of sewing? Was it bird watching? Was it astronomy? I don't know, whatever it was, what has gone by the wayside that you used to enjoy that you're naturally drawn to? And what can you do again on a regular basis so that the good feelings start coming back? And I think that's that's the other point, isn't it? It's not just that you might do it once. Yeah. And and if you do do it once and it doesn't necessarily kind of do that sort of spark joy and make you feel feel mm. great, it's probably going to have to be a process of almost like relearning how to enjoy that thing so it's it's not necessarily just a one and done you're you you know don't expect it to be kind of an instant transformation sadly sorry guys (laughs) yeah I mean a really good analogy is the old-fashioned water pump where you know you're pumping at first and nothing's coming out and nothing's coming out and then gradually the water starts coming out of the spout so you have to kind of just keep going and trust in the process because the, the the research does show that it does work so let's uh, so that as I said, the whole of the sort of the last part of the book is is sort of talking about how to create a lifestyle that beats the blah. You know, what are the things that we can start building back in? You've already talked a li- little bit about sort of connection with nature, kind of connection with friends. What what are, and and the sort of the spark, finding your spark. What are some of the other things that that you sort of suggest in the book? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends really on what your causes of of blah are I mean there can be many other things it could be sort of the hormones it could be diet as well I mean it could you could have been coming out of a long-term illness which has caused some inflammation that's reached your reward system um interestingly um for example the shift in um your microbiome caused by antibiotics can also mean that you're producing less serotonin so it could be that it could be childhood Mm -hmm. trauma it could be burnout it could be just this kind of stress that we've talked about so I think the first thing to do is to try and look at what are the various different reasons that you are in this state and once you know that then you can sort of make your your own prescription yeah (laughs) and I think you talk a lot about exercise as well which you know for me I think is, is a huge one in terms of kind of getting myself into a good mood and I definitely yeah notice now if I'm not definitely doing that in the morning I agree but yeah and I I think you're not the I think you do say in the book and I think uh, it was Rosamond Dean who sort of said the same actually when I spoke to her that you know if exercise was a pill (laughs) we would all be popping it Uh, but uh, you know most of the time it's free or nearly free or it can be so it's a good place to start I mean, it's actually been shown in research to work better than antidepressants, which is quite something. I mean, you know, there's always this kind of like, oh, she's going to say exercise. Oh, no. But, you know, the thing is, when you actually look at the science and, you know, I like lay the science out there and you're like, oh, OK. Yeah. And it's the kind of same with gratitude. I mean, before I wrote this book, I'm like, oh, please, do, do I really have to mention this word? Oh, my God. 
Yeah. <laughs> not gratitude journaling again. No, oh. what a cliche. But like when you look at the science, I mean, it is phenomenal. And it's such a small change that you can make, you know, just like, you know, mm. five minutes at the end of the day or first thing in the morning. And it just really shifts how you see the world, you know. It doesn't even have to be three things. If you, even if you just pick one thing out of every day to think Absolutely. that that was, that was the, the best part of my day. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think just the fact that like knowing that feeling blah or anhedonic is a thing, you know, and just knowing that you've named it and that it's something you can get a handle on, I think is a is even a big shift for a lot of people um, mm. that they don't have to blame themselves and it's not something that they're, they're doing wrong. I mean, something I also talk about is also to talk to your, your loved ones around you, like maybe if you have a partner to talk to them. Because they might, they might have ended up feeling really blamed because, you know, partners tend to think that it's their job to make us happy. And they're like, oh, she's mm. not going to Where am I going wrong? And that can create a separation. And then you're too embarrassed to say because you're not really sure. You know, so one of the greatest things I did was I actually spoke to my husband about it. And I said, look, you know, this is what it is. This is There's this word here and it's not your fault. And it's just a kind of build up of things over the years. And they've all come together now probably with my hormones. And, you know, why don't we work together and let's have some more fun? Because, you know, it's probably the fun has drifted out of your relationship. There are a few partners that are going to say no to that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and may- maybe worth touching as well on the difference between anhedonia and depression. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I say this is not a book for people who are in depression because obviously you should be seeing a professional and getting that sorted. I mean, anhedonia is a symptom of depression. It's a well-known one, but it's also known as a standalone symptom. I'm sorry, standalone condition. Mm -hmm. So you could be getting up, going to work, you know, functioning, not curling up in a ball in your bed and still have anhedonia. So it is part of the DSM-5, but obviously if you have depression, you have other things in the DSM-5 that you really need to be looking at. So this is really more for people who just have this kind of feeling like, blah, I oh, really can't be bothered or can't be asked, just don't feel the joy, you know what I mean? Rather than just have, just can't function and just feel hopeless, you know? But obviously the, the book will give hope as well, but you know what I mean? Yeah, there's definitely, uh, yeah, there's, there's a way out of, of the, of the grey blah pit. Yeah, into the uh, lights. Many, many ways. Well, Tana, thank you so much for, for coming to chat to us. I've really enjoyed the book. As I say, I am a bit of a biology slash science geek, so I loved all, uh, I've underlined all the uh, the different experts that, that you've consulted, and I'm going to follow up on some of those as well, just uh, for my own interest and geekiness. But yes, thank you so much. No problem. It was really lovely talking to you, Emma. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.